Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, this is, of course, a very esteemed uh, feminist tradition of conferences, and it's a great honor to be asked to be the keynote speaker for a scholar and a feminist conference on the politics of reproduction. It's also really great to be here during uh, Professor Spar's first year as president of Barnard. I'm a big fan of her work. We met in London, uh, where she presented parts of the baby business, and I immediately thought, you know, this is a person who's going to write a lot about reproduction and a lot about business, and little did I know she'd soon be heading up Barnard, too, so lucky you. That's a terrific change. Um, Okay, I'm going really quickly because we're already running behind time, and I do tend to talk fast, but I will make copies of this talk available. Um, and I promise not to talk this fast throughout my talk. Um, the title is a placeholder because I'm currently writing a book about the history of IVF, so it was a little hard to know exactly what I was going to say. Um, but I'm going to tell you a story of feminist scholarship, and um, I wrote it with my own uh, history of activism in mind, uh, as much as a uh, history of my own scholarship. So it's also a real honor to be here, uh, I suppose, at a point in my own career where looking back at the emergence of the feminist debate about new reproductive technologies um, allows us a good sort of two, two and a half, three decades worth of retrospection. Um, and that's very much what this talk is focused on, um, right back to Shulamith Firestone, even. Okay, so even uh, without Google Scholar, uh, the most cursory search of the feminist literature on new reproductive technologies, which I'll just call NRT, I could call it ART, but I think NRT is a little bit more consistent with how it emerged in the literature, so I'll just call it that. Um, it been, has been one of the major themes of 20th century and increasingly now 21st century feminist thought, and it's no exaggeration to say that there have been thousands of feminist um, books and articles written on these topics in the past, really even in the past two decades, and it was very difficult to make this slide, and it's one of those slides that you almost don't show because it's trying to do a ridiculously impossible thing, but just to remind you that the feminist literature on reproductive technology did begin very soon after the birth of Louise Brown in 1978. The first two anthologies came out in 1980, and... Um, Throughout the 1980s, a huge number of very important books were published on reproduction in general, as well as on reproductive technology in particular. So um, artificial insemination, surrogacy, uh, surgery, hormonal enhancement of fertility, as well as contraception can all be counted as forms of technological assistance to reproduction. But it is the rapid expansion of IVF technology and its evolution as a platform for genetic as well as reproductive intervention that gives rise to the acronyms ART and NRT from the 1980s onwards. The feminist scholarly literature that developed during this period is highly diverse. However, one of the most prominent strands is the denouncement of new reproductive technology as the embodiment of patri patriarchal culture, from a number of prominent radical feminists, including Maria Meese, Jan Raymond, Jenna Correa, Renata Klein, John Hanmer, and Robin Rowland. This group is, of course, also associated with the formation and leadership of FinRage, the Feminist International Network of Resistance to Reproductive and Genetic Engineering, founded in 1986, and of which I was the coordinator um, from 1988 to 1999. To the extent there is a trademark or generic radical feminist position in this period, it can be simply characterized by its presumption of an identity between new reproductive technology and patriarchal culture. According to this view, new reproductive technologies encapsulate, enforce, and intensify the core values of patriarchal culture. End of. IVF is the unadulterated offspring of patriarchal science or following Mary O'Brien, the manifestation or even proof of a masculine desire to colonize and control the female reproductive process. Within this political framework, female consumers of new reproductive technology were described not only as victims of exploitation, but as collaborators. This mirror theory of new reproductive technology and its accompanying rhetoric of female collusion arguably did not always show feminist radicalism 
scholarship, or politics at their very best. Um, already in the 1980s, the new reproductive technology equals patriarchy position, um, what I often refer to as show-and-tell politics, which would involve you know, a sort of retelling of horror stories from the depths of the IVF lab, as if that self-evidently ends any discussion or, or need for discussion of why women would undertake IVF. Um, already in the 1980s, the NRT equals patriarchy position and its corresponding view of women who had amniocentesis or IVF being, in Renata Klein's infamous phrase, dupes, um, was resisted by many feminists, including large sections, if not a majority, of FinRage. And this is an aspect of FinRage history that I've been writing a bit about. Um, I would really dearly like with my good friend Pat Spallone to write a history of FinRage because it was so complicated, you know, in such a feminist way. Okay, so, um, so, so some feminists were motivated by alternative views of mothering, such as the writings of Adrian Rich, which differentiated between motherhood as a patriarchal institution and as a potential source of women's radical empowerment. Other feminists, such as Naomi Pfeffer and Ann Woollett, sought to empower women to use new reproductive technologies to their advantage. Uh, Pfeffer and Woollett's sympathetic account of female infertility, published in 1983, was partly motivated by the opposition to the feminists against women implications of the portrayal of women IVF patients as victims who were complicit with patriarchy. Similar studies exploring women's experience of IVF and infertility began to be generated from within FinRage, from within FinRage, from the mid-1980s onwards in response to the hard line of um, actually the minority of um, feminists who were involved in its uh, most public representations. Um, to many in FinRage, these, this hard line, complete opposition to everything, always, you know, forever, um, resembled <clears throat> a caricature of radical feminist goals um, and of thought. Um, so studies of women's reasons for choosing IVF, um, which in some ways followed from the Pfeffer and Willett book, were undertaken from the mid-1980s onwards by FinRage members Christine Crow in Australia, Lena Koch in Denmark, Marta Kierczek in the Netherlands, Linda Williams in Canada, and myself in the UK. Conflict arising from these and other challenges to the FinRage hard line, or what we, the dissenters in FinRage, called the hard cline, um, led to the decline of the network, or the declining of the network, from 1989 onwards. However, these early FinRage studies of women's experience of IVF in several countries, as well as the pioneering and, I think, in some ways still very underrated work of Margaret Sandalowski here in the United States established a tradition of feminist studies of IVF that has been continued by many, many feminists, including Judith Lasker and Susan Borg, Judith Lorberg, Gay Becker, Karis Thompson, Susan Kahn, Marsha Inhorn, Lisa Handwerker, Elizabeth Roberts, etc. Many other feminists as well have <clears throat> studied IVF in many different countries of the world, and there is now, it's fair to say, a comparative empirical tradition of feminist literature specifically on IVF that is now a well-established and expanding area of research. And I don't know about um, some of you who work in this area, but I get you know, way more PhD applications for this every year than I could possibly ever handle. Okay, so um, another important strand of the feminist work on reproductive technology was modeled on the women's health movement. Uh, Gail Vines and Linda Burke, two feminist biologists in London, produced a guidebook for women seeking to use new techniques such as IVF in 1990, entitled Tomorrow's Child. This practical approach, sort of our bodies, ourselves, of um, fertility treatment, um, drew inspiration in part from Barbara Katz Rothman's pioneering work on amniocentesis in the mid-1980s, which she, as you may recall, ended with an appendix entitled Guidelines for Personal Decision-Making that was aimed to help women navigate the arduous choices offered by prenatal screening and to cope with the condition for which her book was entitled um, called The Tentative Pregnancy. Um, the defining feature 
of the tentative pregnancy was its uncomfortable ambivalence. Paradoxically, having more information and more reproductive choice could be oppressive and disempowering for women. The difficulties of navigating this ambivalence and discomfort produced by the new choices of NRT has proven to be one of the most consistent themes in the feminist literature on NRT. And if there's any single take-home lesson from this entire body of feminist scholarship, it's that the relationship between technology and reproduction can never be separated from wider questions of women's status and empowerment. In the disappearing margin between new choices and having no choice but to choose them lies the signature paradox of the feminist debate over new reproductive technologies. And we've seen that often today. And I have to say, um, this is one of the best conferences I've been to in ages. You know, I've learned so much today. Okay. Um, which is a little intimidating. <laughs> so you have to excuse me. It makes me a little nervous. Um, okay, so one response to this situation, the um, paradox of reproductive technology, is to see it as what many believe it to be, namely, not really that different from most other political issues facing women in a highly gender and otherwise stratified society, and consequently a situation that calls for legislative change, political organization, government protection, advocacy of women's rights, and as we've seen today, um, intelligence, wit, and an excellent sense of humor. Um, it has also been argued that feminists might have more pressing issues to worry about than infertility, IVF, ultrasound, or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Indeed, the difficult reproductive choices for women who can even afford IVF or PGD might seem most politically legible as a measure of widening health inequality. This view of IVF and its ilk as an elite gambit for which, like cosmetic surgery, the rich who can pay should rightly serve as the guinea pigs for a change, may well be one of the reasons that IVF remains a virtually unregulated industry in almost every country in the world. Um, there are, of course, lots of other reasons why that's probably the case. Um, and again, um, I think Deborah Spar's book on this is incredibly helpful because what it says is that, you know, it is a market and the, the inability to acknowledge that it's a market is part of the problem in producing any sensible regulation, which is clearly sorely lacking in this field. Um, okay, so I suggest that part of the reevaluation of IVF should include greater consideration of its wider biopolitical implications especially now that IVF makes up as much as 5% of the birth rate in many countries. There have been more than 5 million children born from IVF worldwide since 1978, not including all of the other reproductive technologies. Um, and of course, IVF is now the gateway to new regenerative medical treatments based on human embryonic stem cell, stem cell derivation and cloning. Um, and in this way, the implications of IVF, much as they are rightly criticized as being part of an elite, medical, private, global service industry, or as we sometimes call it, cervix industry. Um, she still needs to be recognized as something, and I think this is really one of the most underestimated aspects of the history of IVF, that it's, that it's much wider implications, not only as a treatment, but as a model for treatments and as a gateway to other treatments, really needs to be recognized. I mean, the entire history of IVF is bound up with the shift of mammalian developmental biology into the human, in part as a result of radiation biology after World War II. Um, the, um, a, a much larger topic I won't get into here, but, um, but again, um, for all of the reasons we might rightly criticize IVF as being very elite and narrow in its impact, I think increasingly it should be clear that it is something feminists have to take very seriously because of its implications for, for what I'm going to be calling later transbiology much more widely. Okay, so let me begin with one of the most salient features of IVF, its somewhat unexpected popularity. Um, and I'm just going to put this slide up here that you can... Um, 
stupefier cells looking at, which is what gets done to an egg um, before it gets um, during the process of, of IVF. Okay, so here's an experimental technique involving several radical departures from conventional conception. The artificially matured and surgically removed egg cell is washed, buffered, incubated, and fertilized in vitro. Fertilized eggs are passaged through sequential media and stored in a sterile incubator for up to a week. Surplus embryos are frozen in liquid nitrogen or vitrified for as much or even sometimes even more than a decade before being thawed for transfer. Screening IVF embryos for aneuploidy or PGD involves removing an entire cell for biopsy, while ICSI um, involves the injection of sperm directly into the egg through a microsurgical technique that was discovered by accident. You could be forgiven for imagining 20 years ago that these treatments would not exactly be a runaway global commercial success. Indeed, the popularity of IVF as witnessed by the huge demand that is responsible for its rapid transformation into a largely private global biomedical service industry is all the more remarkable given that it does not work very well. Although its success rates have risen dramatically in the past 30 years, they are still well below 50% at the very best clinics and less than half of that at most others. Despite improvements, IVF continues to carry considerable risk, including that of mortality as a result of ovarian hyperstimulation. The risks of multiple births, with which IVF increases considerably, are routinely underestimated. What is wrong with a woman having twins, especially if she's been struggling to start a family? Um, but even twinning is associated with increased levels of neonatal and maternal morbidity and pathology, and with triplets or more, these risks increase exponentially. Um, much culture media is proprietary, a.k.a. made of secret ingredients, um, and it has become increasingly evident that IVF treatment is associated with a slightly higher incidence of developmental abnormality that may involve errors of genetic imprinting, similar to those that lead to large offspring disorder in cloned livestock. These and other rare adverse effects of IVF have become more evident as the population of IVF offspring has become large enough to detect them, which logically means there will be many more. It is not so much that no one is worried about the fact that IVF is in some senses the most dramatic form of experimental intervention into human reproductive biology ever undertaken or that IVF is unusual in both its technical chutzpah and now monumental scale. Many unsuccessful efforts have been made by many organizations to collect more basic data on IVF patients and their offspring in order better to evaluate its clinical and biological sequelae. The problem is that because IVF is largely private and unregulated, such documentation is all but impossible. Patients are not unaware of the risks of IVF, and every empirical study I've ever read shows that patients worry quite a bit about them. Interestingly, however, the risks of IVF are often part of its appeal. To the extent that a part of the logic of choosing IVF is that even if you fail, you can be confident you've tried absolutely everything, a bit of hardship, and even what might be otherwise considered unacceptable risks may become tolerable in the pursuit of a child. One of the biggest implications of IVF, however, is not the biological consequences of its widespread use three generations from now, but the cultural changes its rapid normalization has engendered. Marilyn Strathairn was the first to begin to chart these in two 1992 publications, Reproducing the Future and After Nature. In both books, Strathairn drew on anthropological theories of kinship to examine changes to the meaning of natural or biological facts engendered by the advent of NRT. Strathairn argued that NRTs revealed the contingencies of how different domains of facts provide the ground for others. Um, I'm sorry, I know it's kind of pointless to try and summarize Marilyn Strathairn in a paragraph, um, but <laughs> I did make a go. Um, it seemed wrong to leave her out. Um, and I did have a conference with her just two weeks ago in Cambridge, and 
she gave a paper about um, the past 30 years of anthropological research on reproductive technology, and one of the points she made, which I think, again, is quite true, um, is that it did make quite a significant impact on um, the discipline of anthropology and has now actually become very much established as part of the curriculum. So it's, it's an interesting topic that kind of migrated from feminist research into anthropology and now has actually become quite a large part of the kinship literature there. Okay, anyway. Um, so she argues that, um, that um, new reproductive technologies reveal the contingencies of how different domains of facts provide the ground for others, comparing this movement to the function of analogy. NRT, with its new analogy of kinship as the outcome of technological choice, made explicit the prime modality of, of kinship knowledge, which was not fixed one way, given, singular, or natural, but digital, plural, and mirographic, i.e. always switching back and forth. What makes a person biological is not the same as what makes them social. What makes them kindred is not the same as what makes them an individual, and so forth. New reproductive technologies added into the switching back and forth of kinship new elements of choice and technological assistance. This, Strathern argues, had a displacing effect as she writes, the analogies traveled back to naturalize consumption as an act of technological assistance. Human reproduction was now explicitly after assistance, after technology, or to put it simply, after culture. And of course, in the context of IVF, the has a literal meaning that just adds to the um, work analogies can do. Okay, so thus conception without IVF is now routinely, clinically distinguished as normal, um, as unassisted, or my favorite, as spontaneous. Um, <laughs> a bit like combustion, perhaps. Um, Post-IVF, non-miracle babies are no longer unmarked. That's what the travel of analogies does. Um, that's what the work of displacement is. IVF at once reproduces conception as an in vitro replica of the natural facts it imitates and changes the meaning of conception or its ability to signify by establishing a powerful new domain of biological facts, technologically assisted biological facts, that we simultaneously understand to be just like the real thing and completely different from it. This is how we get to the designer baby. Okay, but this brings me to a different question, which is how technology and choice operate as denaturalizing idioms, not only for reproduction and kinship, but for gender and sex. We have every right to be put off by the prurient and voyeuristic news coverage of Oregon's Thomas Beatty, the transgender man who gave birth to a child of whom he will be the father and his wife the mother. However, his case is only the most recent evidence of what Strathern calls analogical return in the relationship between sex, gender, and sexual reproduction after culture. Schematically, it is often asserted that the pill brought about a separation of sex from reproduction. Artificial insemination and embryo transfer enabled reproduction without sex. Both the Olympic Committee and feminism had a hand in confirming the separation of sex from gender. And with Thomas Beatty, we can rethink Gail Rubin's sex-gender system once again, taking literally Rubin's definition of the sex-gender system as, quote, the set of arrangements by which a society transforms biological sexuality into products of human activity and in which these transformed needs are satisfied, we need no longer limit ourselves to the sex distinction or what is a woman or what is a man. What we need to understand instead is how much this question has expanded for the transformation of biological sexuality into products of human activity could hardly be a better description of what The Economist magazine has recently dubbed the age of biology, or what Newsweek called biology's Big Bang. And its sex-gender system is only just beginning to be mapped. 
So to think through these questions, I want to delve even further back into the feminist archive to an earlier feminist writer, Shilamith Firestone. Firestone is, of course, famous or infamous for her advocacy of artificial reproduction as a means of freeing women from the tyranny of biology by liberating them from pregnancy, um, which she, of course, famously described as barbaric. Um, for this prediction, the dialectic of sex has long drawn regret and vitriol from other critics, including many feminists, accusing its author of all manner of folly from technological determinism and biological essentialism to sheer naivete. As Maria Meese um, characterized the dangers of the technocratic illusion many feminists pursue in the wake of Shilamith Firestone, they think the new reproductive technology and genetics could, if they were in the control of women, be used for finally abolishing men by cloning them off. These women not only fail to realize that economic, political, and military power is not in the hands of lesbians. Hmm. And now, there, now there's a thought. Uh, there's a thought. There's a thought, yeah. Um, old, <laughs> as well as cloning. Just imagine it. Um, anyway, ultimately, all these arguments are based on a biologistic interpretation of a historical and social relationship. They are without doubt going in the direction of racist and fascist thinking. Mises is hardly unique in her accusation that Firestone and her fellow travelers unwittingly promoted the same totalitarian reasoning they allegedly sought to oppose by attempting to take control of human biology and in particular biological reproduction. To the contrary, it could be claimed that criticism of Firestone's famous fallacy has become iconic of a retrospective dismissal of second wave radical feminism more broadly as being anti-family, anti-maternity, and even anti-woman. This Miss Firestone Regrets version of 70s feminism includes a lengthy list of malapropisms from over-reliance on outdated polarities to unforgivably bad tailoring. Um, <laughs> of course, revolutionary manifestos rely on hyperbole and foreshortening, as well as cheek and verve. And Firestone's 245-page instruction manual for the overthrow of sexual difference racial discrimination, class inequality, environmental degradation, marriage, aging, disease, monogamy, boredom, religion, (laughs) culture, neurosis, depression, and the state was clearly ambitious. (laughs) Uh, The ending paragraph of the book, which is among its least convincing, promises no less than paradise on earth. Still, In the 21-year-old Firestone's own words, it was only a very rough plan (laughs) that was intended to make the general direction of a feminist revolution more vivid. Yeah, vivid. That's what we need, vivid. Okay, so Firestone was not so simplistic a technological determinist as many have claimed, and she didn't promise that cybernetic reproduction would liberate women. Indeed, of all her arguments in the dialectic of sex, her views on science and technology were probably least representative of 70s feminism. In contrast to many of her contemporaries, it was Firestone's utopian faith in technological progress that stood out as unusual. In her advocacy of the benefits of modern embryology, Firestone had more in common with the revolutionary biologists, geneticists, and embryologists who invented biofuturism in the 1920s and the 1930s, particularly in the UK, where the terms transhumanism and ectogenesis were first invented. At that time, a progressive political and intellectual tradition linking literature, science, and cinema United figures such as H.G. Wells, Aldous and Julian Huxley, Charlotte and Jack Haldane, Naomi Mitchison, Vera Britton, and John Desmond Burnell, many, if not actually all of whom, were members of the Communist Party and espoused the same methods, namely ectogenesis, as Firestone. At the heart of this tradition was the utopian aspiration to take control of evolution through technology, a project that has often and almost always very problematically, been invoked as part of progressive causes and is evident in both the birth control and the radical ecology movements, as well as having played a major role in many revolutionary socialist manifestos, including those of China, Cuba, and the Soviet Union. So for Firestone, 
the importance of technology to enable women to gain control over reproduction was all but uncontroversial. Since the origin of the sex distinction for her was, as she put it, biology itself, dash, procreation, its elimination required technological control of the means of reproduction in order for the tyranny of biology over women to be ended. As she says, oh, sorry, I thought that might happen. I had to put these together in a bit of a hurry. Um, and I um, um, got the slides out of order, so let's just, there we go. Um, just as to assure elimination of economic classes requires the revolt of the underclass, the proletariat, and their seizure of the means of production, so to assure the elimination of sexual classes requires the revolt of the underclass and control of reproduction. This will require not only the full restoration to women of ownership of their own bodies, but also their temporary seizure of control of human fertility, the new population biology, as well as the social institutions of childbearing and childrearing. And just as the end goal of the socialist revolution was not only, not only the elimination of economic class privilege, but the economic class distinction itself, so the end goal of feminist revolution must be not only the elimination of male privilege, but the sex distinction itself. The new population biology mentioned by Firestone in this passage and elsewhere in her book refers to reproductive endocrinology, reproductive physiology, and reproductive biology, all of which emerged during the first half of the 20th century and the immediate post-war period. Um, and it's really important, also I'll just mention briefly because I'm very conscious of time, that um, all of that contraception work that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, et cetera, much of it in the UK because they couldn't do it here, um, is what ironically leads to IVF, all that work on reproductive hormones, early embryonic development, um, how to culture, exiles, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that work was done for contraception, so there is a certain irony that it does lead to fertility enhancement. Um, but we should think of these fields as intertwined in important ways that have only really recently, I think, begun to be unpacked. Okay, so um, to uh, Firestone, the pace of developments in the life sciences, and in particular, improved understandings of the reproductive process were breathtaking and full of promise. Um, uh, she said, now, in 1970, we are experiencing a major scientific breakthrough. The new physics, relativity, and the astrophysical theories of contemporary science had already been realized by the first part of the century. Now, in the latter part, we are arriving with the help of the electron microscope and other new tools at similar achievements in biology, biochemistry, and the life sciences. Important discoveries are made yearly of the magnitude of DNA, of the origins of life. Full mastery of the reproductive process is in sight, and there has been significant advance in understanding the basic life and death processes, the nature of aging, growth, sleep, hibernation. Oh, hibernation, interesting, yeah. The chemical functioning of the brain, and the development of consciousness and memory are all beginning to be understood in their entirety. This acceleration promises to continue for another century or however long it takes to understand the goal of empiricism, total understanding of the laws of nature. Um, again, Dialectic of Sex, published in 1970, um, clearly a feature of Firestone's argument that, as I say, in some ways was not particularly widely representative of feminism at that time. In the contemporary era of stem cells, cloning, genetic screening, and transgenic organisms, as well as tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, Firestone's references to major scientific breakthroughs and significant advances in understandings of life and death, aging and disease, and the functioning of the brain sound remarkably familiar. Also familiar in her celebration of scientific progress is its evocation of hope, aspiration, and ethical purpose. As a consequence, we are returned to the ongoing challenge to feminism on the question of scientific progress. When is it desirable? Is it desirable? How is it desirable? What is it supposed to do? In what form? These are difficult questions. As Susan Squire notes at the outset of her erudite and still very uh, relevant account of 20th century visions of reproductive technology entitled Babies in Bottles, published in 1994, reproductive technology has long been a prominent but puzzling theme for feminists, in part because of this question of scientific progress. It is puzzling, Squire notes, because of the disjunction, or what she calls the gap, between much of the work of feminist artists and writers 
who have often produced very emancipatory interpretations of reproductive technology, um, as opposed to the work of theorists and activists, particularly as we have seen in the 1980s, who often did not. Um, so Squire says, um, uh, sorry, now I'm gonna just, yeah. I have long been interested in the contemporary cultural prominence of images of reproductive technology, particularly in the works of women writers and feminist theorists. I have wondered what work of ideological construction was being carried out through the production and dissemination of these images. I have been fascinated by the rich and diverse literary representations of this new medical scientific field, most notably in the works of Joanna Russ, Marge Piercy, Margaret Atwood, Octavia Butler, Elizabeth Jolly, Angela Carter, and Faye Weldon. But I also noticed the puzzling disjunction between the emancipatory interpretations of reproductive technology and many, though not all, of these novels and the negative responses of feminist theorists and activists to the actual implementation of these technologies in Europe and North America. Um, a distinction I suggested is still very relevant to consider today. Okay, so at the time she was writing in the early 1990s, Squire was in the midst of a remarkable outpouring of feminist work on, on NRTs, as I described earlier. Punctuating this prolific period of feminist scholarship on NRT were two works published in the same year, 1985, that Squire argues represented the emancipatory and the negative conventions of feminist representation. Um, in The Mother Machine, Reproductive Technologies from Artificial Insemination to Artificial Wounds, health journalist Jenna Correa offered the first book-length feminist critique of reproductive technologies, claiming they exploited women and that they confirmed a male need to control reproduction. Drawing on extensive research into the histories of artificial insemination, embryo transfer, IVF, surrogacy cloning, sex selection, and ectogenesis, and also drawing also on the theoretical work of radical feminists such as Mary Daly, Andrea Dworkin, uh, and Jan Raymond, Korea was unequivocal in her condemnation of NRTs, ending her book with a feminist call to arms. Despite the unwillingness of male supremacist society to hear us, we must speak. It will not be easy for us to speak at first. The issues surrounding the new reproductive technologies are confusing. Sometimes our heads spin. The benevolent rationales for the technologies and images of kindly, smiling pharmacrats swirl around in our brains, along with our sense that when we are called living incubators and oocyte donors, all is not well. We are supposed to be confused. The confusion keeps us speechless and powerless. It is, as a Native American friend once told me, confusion is a tool of oppression. While we are struggling out of our confusion into speech, we must stubbornly stay with our sense of uneasiness and think it through. We cannot allow ourselves to be bullied into acquiescence with the tolerant view of technology simply because we are not yet able to fully articulate why the benevolent rationales for these technologies clash with our own sense of dignity and worth. We can stand here stubbornly and say something is wrong here and explain that something to the best of our ability. Each time we do it, we will get better at it. When many women break the silence, when many women finally speak their truth and speak it again and again and again, the world will have to change. Such a call to arms, familiar in its appeal to the hidden and forbidden truth of women's experience of patriarchal oppression and to the potential for political change through consciousness raising and collective speakouts could hardly have been further removed from the vision presented by Donna Haraway in a manifesto for cyborgs, science, technology, and socialist feminism in the late 20th century, published in the same year, 1985. Rejecting the universal, transhistorical, and essentialist constitution of women's experience as singular or even real, Haraway advocated the affinity model used by women of color to ground a vision of an ironic, unnatural politics inspired by a love of both biology and technology. Like Marge Piercy, Joanna Russ, and Ursula Le Guin, whose transgressive science fiction inspired her to imagine fruitful couplings with animals, machines, and even, let's not forget, plutonium. Um, Haraway saw in technoscience the possibility of ironic offspring who were neither pure nor whole. 
Significantly, Haraway's work is also closely connected to the socialist-inspired promise of politicized biology that is a legacy in many ways epitomized by British interwar biofuturism. This tradition inspired Joseph Needham, one of the subjects of Haraway's PhD on embryology and also her first book, Crystals, Fabrics, and Fields. Um, and it also, this um, biofuturism tradition of sort of progressive humanism in um, the sciences in Britain um, between the wars also strongly influenced Needham's close friend, Gregory Bateson, Margaret Mead's husband, who was one of the founders of the History of Consciousness program at Santa Cruz, where Haraway has taught since 1980. Um, so as many feminists have argued, Haraway is in many ways the torch carrier both for Firestone's impatience with goddess-loving, pregnancy-worshipping feminist Luddites um, and her enthusiasm for a technologically-assisted, um, fully perverted and completely queer evolution. Um, the difference between their two manifestos is an effective measure, a, quite a good measure, of the rapid dissolution of the primary categories grounding Firestone's analysis in the relatively brief 15-year period separating her cybernetic manifesto from the birth of cyborg feminism. So for Firestone, um, just coming to my conclusion here, for Firestone, the hyphen alone in her reference to biology itself, dash, procreation, tells us more than enough about her indebtedness to her heroine Simone de Beauvoir, to whom the dialectic is dedicated because she endured. It was similarly de Beauvoir who motivated Sherry Ortner to pen her famous thesis that woman is to nature what man is to culture, and it was finally de Beauvoir's insistent pessimism about the enslavement of the human female to the reproduction of the species that led Judith Butler um, to radically revise de Beauvoir's famous pronouncement by revealing gender as the true primordium of the sex distinction. As even the Olympic Committee now knows, biological sex is unreliable and is, if anything, a continuum. It is chromosomally unstable, unusually weak biologically, and even the germline regularly switches sex. That's called imprinting. Biology itself, biology itself, is a revealing phrase. When Foucault refers to life itself, he invokes a technology of representation, a means by which life could be given a newfound unity through a genealogical model of nature. Epistemologically, this new unity of life gave birth to biology, the first discipline of the modern life sciences, which as Foucault reminded his readers um, of the order of things in 1966, did not exist until the 19th century. Biology didn't exist until relatively recently. Without biology itself or otherwise, the apparent fixity of sexual difference and its necessity for reproduction both lose their foundation and their self-evidentness. And today post-Dolly, post-stem cells, post-induced pluripotent stem cells, etc. Um, this truism um, has become so well-established in both the life sciences and popular culture that it has become unclear what the adjective biological or the expression biological fact even mean anymore. Following the methods of experimental embryology in which parts of holes are transferred, fused, and hybridized, um, recombined in order to understand their properties and their mechanisms, the mechanisms of development. Um, the life sciences are increasingly today orientated towards molecular biology, synthetic biology, systems biology, and nanobiology under the sign of a new mantra the new mantra of life's redesign in vivo, in vitro, in silico. This is transbiology, a knowledge production 
that no longer differentiates between life and non-life, or even organic and non-organic, at the level of the basic components of bioengineering. So I think my point, my point isn't this is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, this is an artificial chromosome. Take your pick. But my point is that the terms that were so foundational to Firestone's book, that she begins the book by saying that you have, you have to almost be insane to question biological difference, have really, in a comparatively short period of time, become much more unclear, because the difference, for example, between biological and biotechnological has become very unclear. I mean, is an, is an IVF embryo biological? Well, I mean, no such thing ever existed in biology until there was a huge technological infrastructure to support it, so I think you could go either way. I think that's Haraway's point. Anyway, okay, so um, what is striking about IVF is its importance to this shift in the cultural logic of biological reproduction, as well as the nuts and bolts of how it can now be reverse engineered, um, which is how you get IVF out of contraception, reverse biological engineering. Um, as Struthurn predicted, changes in how we think about kinship inevitably affect how we think about other relationships um, as Firestone might add, this process is dialectical, another term we should maybe revisit. Um, with new knowledges come new relationships, with new relationships come new technologies, with new technologies come new knowledges, etc. We can see this in the case of Thomas Beattie and from his highly publicized rescripting of the relationship between gender, sex, and reproduction. From, and from his rescripting will come others. This is how the future does not reproduce itself exactly. It is also what we might call transbiology in the form not only of transgender, but transpregnancy and transkinship, um, if not, of course, you know, transparency. Yeah. Okay, so the concept of trans, I'm nearly done. The concept of trans was instructively hijacked by Haraway in her effort to imagine what a feminist politics of biology might look like shorn of its loyalties to blood, lineage, families, mother nature, or purity. She used the trans of the transgenetic and the transuranic to extend the cyborg's mission to live perversely and blaspheme ironically. The rogue prefix trans does important figurative work for Haraway by highlighting the shape-shifting categorically non-compliant events that engender unexpected alliances and break out of restrictive norms. Indeed, for Haraway, trans is both a model and a method of feminist biosociality. So what are the lessons this review of feminist positions on NRT and IVF offer to us today? Haraway shares a feminist kinship with Firestone in the attempt to imagine a technologically assisted reproductive future as emancipatory. She also shares Firestone's distaste for the normative structures of kinship, parenting, and family, taking her inspiration from feminist writers such as Joanna Russ, whose gender-free worlds precisely enact many of Firestone's prescriptions. Both theorists belong to a socialist-inspired tradition of progressive humanism laced with biofuturism, and yet one which, because of its feminism, cannot be translated easily into contemporary idioms of transhumanism, posthumanism, autopoetic emergence, rhizomatic becoming, the new vitalism, or postmodern cybernetics. Take your pick. Significantly, both Haraway and Firestone share an abiding concern for women working within the sciences. Um, as Firestone writes in The Dialectic of Sex, the absence of women at all levels of scientific disciplines is so commonplace as to lead many otherwise intelligent people, oh, I can think of someone at Harvard, who was that? Um, to attribute it to some deficiency, logic, in women themselves. Isn't he in charge of the economy now? Um, or um, to women's own predilections for the emotional and the subjective over the practical and the rational. But the question cannot be so easily dismissed. 
It is true that women in science are in foreign territory, but how has that situation evolved? Why are there disciplines or branches of inquiry that demand only a male mind? Um, we might ask Wall Street. Um, why would a woman, to qualify, have to develop an alien psychology? When and why was the female excluded from this type of mind? How and why has science come to be defined as and restricted to the objective? In thinking about the cultural legacy of IVF from a feminist point of view, we should continue to ask critical questions about what Deborah Sparr has called the baby business and its risks, including its global expansion and commercialization as a highly stratified market in reproductive tissue and services within which women comprise the supply side of biocapital. Simultaneously, we should remain concerned about access to these technologies and the value systems that are perpetuated through them. We should add to this list an appreciation of the extent to which IVF, while reinforcing some gender, racial, and kinship norms, has subverted others and contributed to the collapse of biological foundationalism. We should not forget the life sciences are an increasingly feminized transnational workforce, and we should look for new and unexpected alliances here. And I think, you know, um, I went to Smith where they have a very excellent engineering program for women that has really impressed me over the years, and there needs to be, um, Deborah, no, there needs to be a place where there can be a um, life sciences version of that where some of the connections that have almost never happened between feminism and the actual biological sciences can happen. Okay, um, so if there is a, an as yet under-realized feminist movement within the biosciences, this is something we might want to pay attention to in our teaching, our reading, and our politics. Above all, we might need to be brave and think about our biological future in a trans-biological age. Um, if it can rightly be said that rethinking the biological is one of feminism's most important contributions to contemporary thought, the time is right, ripe to stretch the envelope. But listen to me, I'm starting to write another manifesto. Thank you very much. <laughs>